Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So at this uh, point in the retreat, some of you are leaving and some of you are right in the middle of your process. So I wanted to uh, give a talk that might be hopefully relevant to both, uh, both of those yogis categories one what perhaps what have we learned that we can take home with us or what have we been learning that we can uh, that can carry us through uh, to the next month of practice how to apply this experience um, in our life or how to uh, give a context for continuing our practice as we enter a second month. I hope that all of you to some extent have gotten uh, a sense that The practice is really learning to be with everything. That we're practicing sitting after sitting, walking period after walking period, day after day, to meet all experience, no matter pleasant, unpleasant, blissful, difficult, boring, exciting, to meet it with wisdom, to meet it with courage, to meet it with love, or at least compassionate understanding. And of course, at times, it's a little bit uh, easier to be with the blissful and the good stuff. Um, And at times, it can be seemingly impossible when we're down in the trenches and seeing our minds, seeing our patterns, seeing our hearts, and seeing, oh my God, am I still here again? Or I've heard 17 hindrance talks and I should know better by now. That just makes it doubly frustrating and discouraging. But it's not about doing away with anything. It's about seeing that uh, every moment that we're here and willing to show up for our experience, no matter how humbling it is, Uh, we are learning something really profound that's going to keep deepening our practice and helping us express our practice in in the world. I always uh, find it a helpful reflection that um, no matter how much doubt, how much fear, how much confusion we might experience that there's something stronger than all of that doubt or fear or confusion that is pulling us through. If you're here, you're still here after a month, then I would put my 
money on the fact that there's something in you that is stronger than all of those kilases and um, unwholesome states that is guiding you through, whether or not you realize it. What is that? What is that that's stronger even than the fear, the doubt, the confusion, the smallness? What is it? This is the, the, the thing to not miss, to really understand, experience, appreciate. And whatever you happen to call it, whatever resonates for you, um, it's the precious uh, seed of awakening that is pulling you through. Bodhicitta is one name for it. The, the heart of enlightenment, bodhicitta, the heart, mind, citta, bodhi, enlightenment, that just loves the truth that can't ignore it, that is touched deeply and keeps calling us. And once we have been touched by it, um, there's no turning back. Maybe it's been mentioned, I don't know, if uh, this line by Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, who said... uh, the, the spiritual journey is fraught with perils and pitfalls and dangers. Uh, and so uh, it's best to consider carefully before entering on it. But once embarked on, it's best to complete it. Because otherwise you're kind of in no man's land where, you know, you, you can't turn back to the way things were. You know, ignorance is, is no longer an option, and it's certainly not bliss. Uh, and you see, oh, can I just go back to cultivating more greed, hatred, and delusion? <laughs> well, I don't know. It doesn't sound so good. Uh, and yet, there's a lot more to be done, and so to just keep on listening to what's calling us, Mm. and that seed of awakening is, is ready to blossom in any moment. You don't have to wait until some imagined idea of getting enlightened, then I'll get it. It's right here in this moment, and I've spoken to so many people who've been touched profoundly in moments that have seen things in in a new way, and all it takes is being really present for it, not missing it, and getting in touch with that. um, Innocence, for me, is a a feeling of innocence, of purity of heart, of goodness, that um, touches us deeply. And so just to be present for it and acknowledge it and honor it when it's felt and let our hearts be moved by it. And when we touch that place of purity of heart, it's something that's very trustable that we can surrender to, that we become devotees of the truth. Sometimes people ask about devotion in this path. And there's, if you go to Asia, you see devotion all over the place, you know, just bowing to everything. Jack Cornfield said when he was a monk, he, he finally got after a while, if it moves, you bow, you know. <laughs> but sometimes devotion is, is not such a, an alive kind of uh, experience here. And, and often uh, uh, the, the Buddhist path, or sometimes it's called the path with no railings, that you can't 
hold on and lean on some kind of deity that's going to save you and protect you uh, because there's the dharma is uh, is not a uh, is not a, a noun so to speak even though grammatically it is there's not a thing that you can lean on but when you are moved by the truth in that way you can be a devotee of the truth and you fall in love with it. And there's a, uh, in the teachings, one particular uh, quality, one source of inspiration. I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's been mentioned in here. Uh, the, the different idipadas, have the idipadas been talked about? I haven't been to all the, the talks. There's one, idipada means a basis of power or success, like siddhi, power, idipada and one of the one of the bases of power is called chitta idipada and it is that feeling of being when you've had a taste of the truth and you've been touched by it and you just fall in love with the dharma and everything else pales in comparison and you are drawn like a moth to a flame and that can be a, a great source of, of inspiration. Here's uh, Ramana Maharshi. After tasting such bliss as this, even once one will repeatedly try to regain it. Having once experienced the bliss of peace, no one wants to be out of it. And of course, you know, the more you repeatedly try to re-experience it, watch out, there's a little bit of attachment that can easily go in there. So it's got to be skillfully done, not, not to recreate any experience, but to just know that it's here and we can, we've been touched and moved by it and to find out or understand how to open up to that more consistently, which is not by grasping, not by trying to create an experience, but by just opening up to what's already here. This is uh, Nisargadat Maharaj. Reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from the past and future, which are merely mental. If you need time to achieve something, it must be false. The real is always with you. You need not wait to be what with to be what you are. Only you must not allow your mind to go out of yourself in search. Punjaji, uh, an inspiring teacher that some of us have have uh, studied with, a great Advaita teacher who passed away uh, in 1996 or so. He says, the desire for freedom is our most intense desire. All other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall, you see. The desire for freedom is intense and you must respond to it. When you respond, this desire will bring you back home. It will continue to trouble you if it is not fulfilled. This desire must be fulfilled whether you like it or not. Again, not out of a grasping mind, but out of just a deep love of the truth. And the truth is here all the time. So it's not something, as, as Nisargadat says, that you have to look outside for. Just being able to listen and hear and your ingredient, as I think I mentioned the first night or the, my first talk, uh, is your sincerity. That's all you need. Not to manipulate reality so that it conforms in the way you want, but just to show up with a really sincere heart. And reality will reveal itself to you if you allow it and don't try to manipulate or mess around with it. And when you do, when you're touched by it, it's 
It's like grace has opened up. It's amazing how simple somebody was saying in in the interview uh, today. How simple. It's so simple. It's so simple that it's elusive. Oh, just be with things as they are. Have you heard that before? You know? Just be with things as they are and let your heart open to it and not try to fix it. And it's amazing. Uh, the Tibetan uh, teachings, many teachings start out with this word that I love uh, in the great Vajra songs, emaho, E-M-A-H-O, exclamation mark. Emaho, which means how marvelous, how amazing. Emaho, listen, fortunate heart children, to the Dharma. Then it becomes, instead of an endurance test, this adventure. Again, I'm, I'm not sure if I share this, but uh, here it is again. At one, uh, one time in my practice, I was, um, I had been practicing for about five years. I think I shared in an interview. I was practicing for in, for about five years, and it was I was in love with the Dharma, with the practice, and um, and all of a sudden, it, it, at one point, it was like I opened up to a whole other um, dimension of practice. And I went into m- my interview and uh, said to Joseph, "I don't know what I've been doing before, but this is like a whole new ball game," you know. And he said, yeah, I get that. I know that feeling. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I get it every time I sit. (laughs) And then he leaned leaned forward and he said, and you know what? It's like we're at the tip of the iceberg. And he said it with a real sparkle in in his eyes. It's like we're at the tip of the iceberg. He wasn't saying there's so much more that we have to learn. He was saying... How exciting the Dharma keeps on revealing itself to us. To have that sense of wonder and awe and love for the truth. I was, I was recalling as I was putting this, these thoughts together. When I was a kid, I, um, my favorite book, I hadn't thought about this in ages, was this big book, um, kid's book called The Giant Book of Fascinating Facts. I loved that book. A giant book of fascinating facts. Wow! And not everybody has that temperament. If you do, uh, that's that's another idipada, a zeal and enthusiasm uh, for discovering the truth but to just let yourself be touched with that awe and wonder. Einstein says, there's two ways to go through life. One is seeing nothing as a miracle, and the other is seeing everything as a miracle. And I, I would uh, bet that most of you have had moments where just... Watching a lizard or watching the plants grow, uh, it's all amazing when there's that kind of sensitivity to life around you. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then every moment counts when you have that kind of, when you're in touch with that kind of um, being moved by the Dharma. And you see there's a finite number of moments in your life and this is one of them that's never been here before, will never be here again. I was remembering my mom, um, who I've mentioned here before, one of the things when she had me, uh, she was dictating about uh, her last words at her memorial service. She said, "Mm, just being alive is such a great gift. 
But so often you don't really appreciate it until you're on your way out. Why wait? Here it is, right now. And when you go through your difficulties, that also is part of the curriculum. There's nothing wasted in it. In fact, that's a very important key part of the curriculum because going through the challenges, mentioned this before, being humbled once again, you see you make it through once again and there's a sense of confidence a sense that something can hold it all, that even under all the neurotic patterns and, and uh, confusion, there's qualities of heart that can hold it that are your true nature. That's, that's the good news. And that is what leads to, um, to confidence and faith, verified faith. Julia Butterfly Hill, who's a, a real inspiration for me, she says, as long as you're learning, there's no mistakes. Really comfort. As long as you're there's no mistakes in this life because it's all part of your unfolding. So uh, why wish it had been different? You're missing the point. And what we're doing in practice, just to put it in a context that I, I find very helpful, uh, um, an image that uh, Joseph um, used to use. I don't know if he uses it anymore, but I was really, this made sense to me in uh, early days of practice. Of um, a hill, a steep hill, put a ball on the top of that hill, in the center of the hill, and it's very precarious and can easily slip down. That's the very beginning of practice. Maybe from time to time, you get a sense of what it's like to be centered in your center. And it can be frustrating how easy it is for it to slip off and for you to lose your center. As you keep on putting in your time and putting uh, and, and deepening your practice, the hill, you can think of it as becoming flat. And you, you've worn down that steepness and you put it in the center and it stays there a lot more easily. It can still get blown off with a gust of wind, but it's definitely more abiding in the center. As you keep on deepening your practice, the hill and the ground, flat ground, becomes a valley. You put that ball in the center and that's where it stays. It might get blown off, but this is where it returns to. And that might be one way to think of deepening your practice just having more and more access to that place of home so that you don't have to worry, will I lose it? Have I, will I get it back? This is more and more the place that you are naturally living from. Not that you can't get lost. In a moment you can get lost. You know, and I, I sometimes say, press the right button and I can be back in third grade with judgment and paranoia and everything there, but not so long. It doesn't last for very long. Oh, back in third grade again, okay. And here we are, back home. So just our willingness to open up to experience and our courage and our sincerity of heart, this is, this is the key. This is from um, Jennifer Wellwood, Unconditional, this poem is. Willing to experience aloneness, 
I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is pure delight, to honor its form, true devotion. But as we open to the difficult, I just hope that you get struggling is extra. There's enough dukkha to go around already. Struggling because there you are again in the dukkha and how the heck do I get out? You've just compounded the problem and are throwing what's called the second dart and the third and a whole quiver of, of arrows when you are feeling you've got to somehow desperately extricate yourself. And the moment that you wake up and see, oh, this has simply been a mental fabrication, in a moment you're free. And I know almost just about everybody that I've seen and I think that's been here has seen at least moments where you see, oh, I just created this hell realm in my mind or this, this scary prison and I'm free. Just not being attached to our views and opinions about how reality is. I was speaking to somebody um, on the phone recently, uh, a, uh, somebody who I, I support, and he was talking about <clears throat> how something very profound happened to him on uh, a retreat um, last year that has stayed with him, that has made such a difference in the way he lives his life. And I said, oh yeah, tell me about it. He said, well, you know, it was the simplest, most you know, mundane thing, but there I was, and he was down by the, the benches outside the dining room, and he was looking at the clouds, and he was seeing how fast the clouds were moving, and he said to himself, wow, the clouds are really moving fast right now. And then the thought occurred to him, well, are the clouds moving fast? Or is that what's really happening? Are the clouds real, substantial? And then he thought, well, we're moving fast. And he had this sense, you know, it seemed like I was, he said, it just seemed like I was still. And then I realized we are hurtling through space at, whatever it was, 18 miles per second, whatever. And we have no idea that we're moving fast. And then in a moment, everything kind of spun around and he saw, oh, from my perception, I'm still and the clouds are moving fast. And all of a sudden he saw how he was just making up reality continuously. How we were all making up reality continuously. And in that moment, he started to examine, is my view the absolute, ultimate reality? And he saw, how could I have missed this all along? And since that time, it's opened him up. Every time he starts getting caught, he just remembers those clouds sitting down by the table, and he sees, oh, 
I'm just making up this reality. It's as simple as, as that. So to see in whatever way resonates for you that we're just making up our reality and that when we go out into the world, we are meeting others who are living in their made-up reality and that's what's going on, uh, it changes everything. Then instead of, why doesn't everybody get it the way it really is, the way I see it, you see, we're all just walking around in our own bubble of reality that we're mostly absolutely sure is the truth. And this is one of the great gifts as we bring our practice into the world to understand this, to not only see it with, within here after a month or two months of sitting, but then to extrapolate that and see it out in the world. And when you get caught in disagreement, in frustration, in thinking, why don't they get it? Uh, just seeing you're each carrying around your own reality. The Dalai Lama has a, a really uh, good teaching, a love. He says, if somebody out there is, um, is upsetting you, understand that it's generally not that they're, whatever they're doing, they're doing to upset you. It's just that their internal reality has intersected with your internal reality in a way that does not meet up with your expectations and hopes. So simple, right? It changes everything, though. So as you touch the possibility of getting a little bit lighter about how you hold reality and your mental fabrications, then you can play a little bit more in your life. Then you see beyond or perhaps touch what's beyond your mental fabrications to something deeper that's not dependent on your perspective, that larger ultimate reality. You see the wider perspective. Maybe you've touched the an understanding of emptiness, the emptiness of all phenomena, including your ideas and opinions. And as you more and more understand that perspective, then you can play at being you. Then it's the only game you have, it's the only show in town, your movie, your life, but you can be a bit lighter about it. You, you can't just live in pure awareness all the time. You have to honor the relative. But holding it in that larger perspective um, gives you some, um, some wisdom and freedom and compassion for how you can live your life. But not to think, well, I've touched the ultimate and now I can just, you know, that's how I'm going to live my life now. Good luck. As uh, Padmasambhava says, uh, your view must be as vast as, as the sky, but your conduct and attention to karma must be as fine as a grain of sifted barley flour. So this is the challenge to bring our practice to daily life. Holding that larger view and yet living our life wisely. This is a, a famous, uh, or now Dharma Circle famous, uh, piece of wisdom that uh, my good buddy Howie Cohn first turned me on to. Uh, contemporary prayer, which is now, uh, I've seen it in, in a card store. I have, the, I have the card that says, Dear God, so far today, I've done okay. I haven't gossiped 
or lost my temper. I haven't been crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent. And I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And then I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Amen. It's hard enough to see things clearly here when you've got all the support and very minimal stimulation and input. It's that much harder out there in the world without the refuge and support and somebody cooking your meals and, you know... Oh, yeah, let's see. Oh, I've got to chop vegetables. That's my task for the day, you know. There's a little bit more going on out there. And it's not, uh, it's not supportive of you seeing things clearly. And so it's really important to, to see and understand with compassion what we're up against. This is uh, uh, my, from my favorite writer, uh, Mark Morford who writes every Wednesday. He's got an online column, um, which is my peak experience for the week. Um, This is from an excerpt from his column, Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. Okay? (laughs) Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exists to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? (laughs) I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? (laughs) What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things that you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? (laughs) Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation, for most, is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in 2010 said a stunning article I read in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created in all, by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. And by the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It is no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, waving to the closed caption TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. 
You can't just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn (laughs) as OnStar politely blows up your car. How easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts. Time, uh, work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day. And time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. That's what we're up against. But we've practiced here seeing another way. And it takes all the support to remember that there is another way. One very uh, powerful foundation of that support is um, having a commitment to have your actions held in sila, in alignment with your values, so you're not doing things unconsciously that, um, that will lead to suffering. It's just such a great protection. The bliss of blamelessness. And we can get in touch with it if we slow down enough, not just by making our outward commitments, as we've been doing with taking the precepts regularly, but with listening inside to get a sense Where is this going to lead? Am I going to look back and feel good about what I've done? Or will I look back and say, I can't believe I did that and have a lot of cleaning up to do. So the bliss of blamelessness really helps to get in touch with that alignment and just slowing down and listening, particularly when you're at a choice point. Acting in the world, another uh, tremendously powerful practice is um, learning how to open to all the goodness around us. Because if we look through the lens that this is uh, a dangerous place or that people are going to disappoint us. Not to be naive, you know, the old uh, Sufi saying, trust in Allah and tie your camel to the post. You don't want to be naive about things. But to not just look through that amygdala lens saying, they're going to disappoint me, the world is a dangerous place. And certainly if you've had some trauma in your life, those responses can, can come up uh, um, easily and they need to be honored and understood. But to start looking for the good. This is a, a, a basic practice that has been my base, basic practice for many years. Uh, Neem Karoli Baba, who I, I mentioned uh, before uh, from Ram Dass's books, Be Here Now, he said, the best form to worship God is every form. And what I took that to be is keep on looking for the divine wherever you are, looking for the good, both inside and outside. Because when you do, when you look for the good, you will more likely find it not only more likely find it because you have a confirmation bias that is open to that, but you also bring it out of others. And uh, I, I often say, you know, just reflecting on how you are around s- people who you sense are not looking for the good and are judging you. You walk into a room and you see somebody's eyes judging you. How do you feel? Judged, flawed, 
small, defensive, whatever, wary, somebody else might know all your flaws, but they're just looking and seeing how beautiful you are. How do you feel? Beautiful. We have a tremendous power to draw that out of others just by what we look for. It's a really good way to go through our lives. Not to be mm, naive, but to see what's already here. And one practice that I have, uh, that I've been playing around with for the last few years, very powerful practice, when anybody smiles at you or is kind to you or opens a door for you or says, hi, how you doing? And really, you can, f- you can feel their goodwill. Don't miss it. Let yourself feel the connection and see them as an agent of life letting you know that you're loved letting you know that you're worthy of kindness. When you start tuning into it, you'll see how much life loves you and wants to support you. It's easy to miss, but once you have your radar out, it's everywhere. And you can't take in and hold all of that love. It's so much. What to do? Just let it pass through and send it out. So I have this image that we can be meta-recycling machines. You know, just taking in the love and letting it out. And having very good boundaries when there's negative energy coming to you. This is uh, Lewis Thomas, the same guy who wrote uh, um, You Are an Ecosystem. Remember, I read that a number of talks ago. He says, um, I maintain, despite all the evidence against the claim, that we are born and grow up with a fondness for each other. And we have genes for that. We can be talked out of it for the genetic message is like a distant music and some of us are hard of hearing. Societies are noisy affairs drowning out the sound of ourselves and our connection. Hard of hearing, we go to war. Stone death, deaf, we make thermonuclear missiles. Nonetheless, the music is there waiting for more listeners. This is who we are. We yearn to connect. And not to be naive, yeah, there's a lot of suffering in the world, but if we only see what's wrong, then we get very depressed and don't, uh, don't feel we have the capacity to act. This is from Howard Zinn, the great historian who wrote the People's History of the United States, the, the non-whitewashed history, who is also happens to be John Kabat-Zinn's uh, father-in-law, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago. He says, An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, however, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. So besides um, looking for the good, 
to and feeling that that connection and holding it in a container of sila to express our caring this is the full flowering of our practice authentic happiness the book that martin seligman wrote who uh, he's the father of positive psychology he he's he realized after a lot of research that authentic happiness is identifying our gifts and then sharing them with the world not how much we can get but how much we can contribute and feel a joy in that contribution and so in doing that we are um expressing our caring and our compassion and um, we make a difference in the world not just to be saints but because and not to be saints but because it feels good we're wired up for caring it's the mirror neurons in our brain that when you see somebody else stub their toe it lights up in the same place in the brain as if it happened to you and this is something to keep in mind about our dharma practice that it's as important to find a way to express our caring as to find a deep um, peace within ourselves and this is from uh, bhikkhu bodhi uh, the great translator, premier translator of the Pali Canon, who wrote a beautiful essay, powerful essay, that you can get online called A Challenge to Buddhists. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite. But it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. There's so much suffering in the world. You don't have to look very far. And you can be overwhelmed. We've been doing the equanimity meditation these last few days. You can be overwhelmed. Where do I start? And I find it helpful, uh, a, a phrase that Andrew Harvey, who's another inspiration of mine, says, to follow your heartbreak to get a sense of what really touches you and in that area to express your caring. Because as uh, Angelus Arian says, action absorbs anxiety. And underneath the caring or the outrage or the anger that you might experience, if you go deeper, it's just love and caring that is the source of all of that frustration to connect with that deeper level so that your actions come from that place much more magnetizing than just setting up the good guys and the bad guys out there again julia butterfly hill an inspiration very uh, inspiring uh, woman who was up in the tree for uh, saving the redwoods for uh, for two years in uh, um, in Northern California. She, when she talks, she's just she's you know very dynamic and inspiring. And uh, people come up to her at the end of 
her lectures and say, oh, Julia, you, you've inspired me so much. And her reply is, oh, that's so wonderful. Inspired you to do what? <laughs> inspired you to do what? Not to wait for somebody else, but to find what really moves you. For me, in these last few years, uh, my heartbreak, and there's many, but mine particularly is around climate change. Uh, Because uh, after reading Bill McKibben's book, Earth, a few years ago, I I couldn't pretend any longer. And uh, I said, I don't know what I can do, but I've got to do something. And it can seem overwhelming, but when you start to get involved and connect with others, that makes a difference. There's a a beautiful um, um, research study that that shows that uh, when people hold each other's hands, their capacity for pain, physiological capacity as well as emotional and psychological capacity, is much greater. And that's what Refuge in the Sangha is about. You don't know what effect you'll have in the world. And if you feel, oh, it's overwhelming, nothing can happen, then you're not really adding to anything, but if your own love and caring is expressed, it magnetizes and things can change very quickly. Look how fast things have changed around same-sex marriage, just in the last three or five years, just kind of fallen down, not in some people's hearts, of course, but in the conventional wisdom, or violence, uh, um, domestic violence. It's no longer okay. And the same with, uh, with other big topics. I came across a study that said, all that's needed for a paradigm shift is a 7% shift in the population's thinking. You don't have to wait to convince everybody because most people are sitting on the fence saying, what am I supposed to believe? But when things, there's a shift in consciousness, it can happen very fast. And that's the beauty that you don't have to do this alone. That's the, 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 the gift of Sangha. And you don't have to see, will it work or not? You just put your whole heart into it and that becomes a powerful magnetizing force. You don't have to do this alone. And in fact, as we know, Sangha is the key to our deepening practice and the key to making a difference in the world. So I'll, I'll just end with this Dana Falls poem. I think I read it one of the late nights uh, called Sangha. She says, teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders, each for the other, that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous. To stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown, and together facing yet another fear. That is nothing short of grace. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.